first off, I learned something about our fellowship last week. You like to participate. Don't get your hopes up. That's all I can say. I like it quiet. I assume you're listening. See, I assume that I have your attention. These guys that say, can I get an amen? You know what the first thing is? They assume you're not listening. Ah, see, it's a self-need when they get up here and want to be. <laughs> We're not going there. So when I lock up and we have eye contact, you know that I'm looking at you. Anyway, we're in Revelation chapter 12. Tony, by the way, is probably my best friend in ministry. Known the guy for years. He's the reason that I kept coming back to a Calvary Chapel in California. He would always grab me at the back door and say, Hey, it's good to see you again, man. What's been going on? And he would never let me escape. And then we went through ministry meetings together. And he would get us in trouble. Not me. He would get us in trouble. He's that kind of guy, though. But anyway. Revelation chapter 12. Uh, we look at some true questions in this chapter. Why does the world, why do almost all of the nations hate Israel? You ever think about that? They hate Israel. Why are there constant many wars why is there saber rattling by all of Israel's neighbors why is there anti-semitism throughout the world simply put because Satan hates God and Satan hates all that God loves and cherishes like Israel Israel are God's chosen people Christians, you and I, God's chosen people. And we look at the war that breaks out in heaven in chapter 12, verse 7, and it breaks out between Michael and his host against Satan and his host. And that war between good and evil, it goes on in our hearts on a daily basis. It goes on in the hearts of Jews. It goes on in the hearts of Christians because God loves us. And Satan always comes against us. I don't know if you've noticed, but we will never be accepted by the sinful world that we live in. Have you ever thought about uh, organizations like the ACLU? If we met every one of their demands, and people like the ACLU, people that I feel are Satan disciples, if we met every one of their demands, they would have a brand new list tomorrow of demands that they would put upon Christians. Amen. Mm, I'm not used to that. <laughs> Satan's M.O. is to kill, to destroy all that God loves. The good news, Satan is defeated. That's the good news. He lost in the Garden of Eden when God cursed him. He lost for sure at Calvary when our Lord defeated sin and death. And his future loss in heaven will be when he's cast out. 
Satan also loses during the great tribulation time. Ultimately, he's cast into the bottomless pit. So all Satan has left is time, and that time is short. Satan's battle is not only against Israel and Christians, but it's really against humanity because God created humanity. And that's what the sinful world doesn't realize. Satan is not their friend. He is their enemy also. And we left off in verse 9 of chapter 12, but I want to back up a couple verses. So we're going to read Revelation 12, starting in verse 7 and go through 17. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of earth and the sea, for the, devil, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a times and a times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed out water from his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we get to see beforehand a future event in heaven. After this war between Michael and Satan and their hosts that follow each of them, Michael, the archangel, he prevails. He prevails against all of Satan and all of Satan's hosts that fell with him, that great dragon, that serpent of old, who deceives the whole world. Your unsaved friends and loved ones are deceived. Understand that when you pray for them. Understand that when you witness to them. They are deceived. And then we hear John and he, and he hears this loud voice coming out of heaven, and the voice says, Now salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ, God's Son, have come. This is the moment that all of creation has waited for. 
all the inhabitants of heaven, the angels, the elders, the, the saints, the raptured saints, the martyred saints, they're all rejoicing because God's kingdom has come and there is great joy in heaven. Great joy, but there's a completely different story going on, completely different scene here on earth. And it says, woe to all those that are on the earth or on the sea. Woe because Satan realizes his time is short. John then gives us commentary in verse 13. And I like it. John does that all through his gospel. He does it uh, through the book of Revelation also. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he realizes he's been cast to the earth. There are four casting downs of Satan, by the way. Ezekiel 28, Now I want you to turn to this, and it's, it is a good passage, and we'll read that in a moment. But he is cast down from his glorified position, his persona of an angel of light in heaven, and he's cast down to profane. Notice in Ezekiel 28, and we're going to read it here, the I refers to God dealing with Satan. So let's read Ezekiel 28, 14 through 16. Ezekiel, of course, inspired by the Lord, writes, You were the anointed cherub who covers. I, speaking of God, established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as out as a profane thing, out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covered cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. So we have this casting down of Satan. He became then the accuser of the brethren. And Satan goes from a thing of beauty. He was created beautiful. Many think he was created the worship angel of heaven. And he becomes this profane thing from beauty. Created perfect in his ways. Satan perhaps had the greatest opportunity of any of the angels to be a glorified angel. Until until iniquity was found in him. Satan became filled with violence, and God cast him out of his heaven, his kingdom. Now, he still had certain rights to come when the other angels did, but he no longer was around the throne of God on a constant basis. And then we second, we have Satan being cast down to the earth, and here that we've read Revelation 12 here, which is also referred in Zechariah 3. But yet future there is a casting down. Uh, he's cast from earth to the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and this is when the thousand-year millennial reign will go on. And then finally, he's cast from the pit 
to the lake of fire eternally. And that's in Revelation chapter 20. So we have the four casting downs of Satan. He is not victorious. I think it's critical for every Christian to understand our Lord is victorious and has won the battle. It just has to play itself out. But back to that verse where in verse 13, evidently Michael, the archangel, has given Satan a severe knockout punch. Why would I say that? Because in verse 13 it says, Now when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he wakes up. Walla, I've been kicked out of heaven. And I just realized it. <laughs> you ever come out of a deep sleep and for a moment you wonder where you are? If you travel, that's, that happens quite a bit. When I travel anyway. So it happens to you. So there we go. Uh, when he realized that he had been cast out of heaven, he no longer has access like the other angels, the good angels do. And this war between Michael and Satan has been a severe loss for Satan and his host. He's been cast down to the earth. And suddenly it dawns upon him that he is defeated, that he has lost the war. His only reaction when this realization takes place is to persecute God's people. So Satan immediately begins to persecute Israel because Israel is God's chosen. And he begins to persecute all of humanity yet to be martyred, the martyred saints. And we wonder, well, why, if he's a defeated foe, why doesn't Satan just throw the towel in? I quit. I give up. I surrender. Uncle, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you want to cry out when you're defeated. And that is a good question. But the true question becomes, why doesn't man give up to God? People that you and I know, relatives, loved ones, why do they not surrender their heart to God and to the will of His Spirit? That God is not willing that any should perish, but why are so many around us perishing? And then we have even a greater question. Why as believers do we resist God and the work of His Spirit in our lives. Why do we resist God? You have Satan and his demons numbering, I think, in the millions, and they're fighting. They're fighting God's people, and they're fighting like cornered rats. A rat, if you corner him, he will fight to death, and that's what Satan's doing. But why do we resist? As believers, why do we resist the work of God in our lives? Why do we cry out on a daily basis, my will be done? We're told to pray that his will would be done. And we're told that because we do much, 
Too many times we say, my will be done. Our daily battle is to surrender to God. Often our lives are contrary to the Spirit of God. And I'm going to come back to that question later, but let's move along now. In verse 14, Israel, uh, the woman is given two wings of a great eagle. And eagle wings are spoken of in the Old Testament as a way of God's deliverance. Exodus 19.4, God declares, You have seen how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you out of Egypt to myself. So God says of the Exodus when Israel came out of Egypt that he, they came out on eagles' wings, meaning God's provision, God's deliverance. Um, now, I've heard sermons taught on this eagle wing thing, and many times they refer to great military transport planes uh, used to evacuate Israel in it. They, and perhaps it is. I don't know. But, you know, here in... Here in Huntsville over the last month, we've had these extremely large transport uh, planes, and uh, they look like the Von Braun Center with wings, if you've seen them come over. I mean, they are enormous. You wonder, how does that thing stay in the air? So I call Neil and ask him, and he tells me, no. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. <laughs> uh, but they are these huge planes, and they, these planes are so large, they carry hundreds of tons of cargo. Can you imagine? You know, they roll several army tanks on these things, and they take off, and you go, wow. <laughs> but these eagles' wings could very well be transport planes that evacuate Israel to uh, Petra, to that area for their protection. But what is Satan's response to this Israel fleeing? The serpent, it says, spewed out water out of his mouth. And I believe this is a literal flood. That's a desert area. Have you ever been in a desert area when there was a flash flood? All of a sudden, it can be perfectly clear where you are, but there could have been a thunderstorm in the mountains and all this water comes rushing down these dry riverbeds, and it's extremely dangerous. You don't dare want to cross one of these. Uh, years ago, I was in a in Southern California. I was in a four-wheel drive Jeep club, and we would go out all over the place breaking our toys and spending money. But anyway, we went out to the desert one time, and there'd been a rain shower. And we were crossing this little creek that became a torrent. I managed to stick my vehicle right in the middle of it. Had to wade out and could not go back and get it that day. So I'll go back later in the week to get my vehicle. And it's perfectly dry land. But it's buried up to the axles in mud. <laughs> but we got it up. I know you were wondering if we got it. We got it up. But... Flash floods can be very dangerous, and Satan sends out what I think is a flash flood, and he tries to destroy Israel, who is fleeing Jerusalem, after the abomination of desolation, 
which takes point, place in the midpoint of the tribulation when Satan shows himself for what he is. The abomination of desolations is when the Antichrist demands worship in the new Jewish temple. And you talk about a wake-up moment for the Jews. This is their wake-up moment. It's so startling to them, to the Jewish people, that they realize that they have been duped by the Antichrist and they begin to flee Jerusalem. And Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 24. But this dried up, parched earth that's there helps Israel by swallowing the waters of what I think is a flash flood that were sent out to destroy her. This flood doesn't work for Satan. And he is enraged all the more. It makes him all the more angry wrathful towards Israel. So Satan turns his attention then to making war with the rest of the woman's offspring or the rest of Israel. By the way, at this time, many, many of the Jews will turn to Jesus as the true Messiah. They will realize their foolishness, they will realize that they've been deceived, and they will turn to Jesus, and they will keep the commandments of God. And they also have the testimony of Jesus Christ. But the abomination of desolation is when Israel, the beast, or rather, when the beast, the false Christ, will set up an image of himself in the new Jewish temple, and he will demand worship. That's one thing we know that will happen right in the middle of the tribulation period. And this again causes that mass exodus of believing Jews from Jerusalem. And this marks a time period of the halfway time period of the tribulation period. Most of the world, including the Jews, will hail this false prophet as their Messiah before the desolation. But this demanding of worship, this profaning of the temple, it's like a light goes off in the heads of any of the Jews that know their history whatsoever, that know the scriptures to any degree, they will realize this is not the true Messiah. So this, we're led up to the midpoint of the tribulation period. There's still three and a half years left, and in that three and a half years, it's when things really get ugly here on earth, because Satan will begin to kill, to maim, and to destroy. That is at the midpoint. But I want to go back and talk about, as believers, why do we resist the work of God's Spirit in our lives? You ever think about that? Why am I so stubborn? Why does my flesh, my logic, come against my Lord so often in my own life? 
And I want us to look at a classic example. We're going to look at a man that resists God. First of all, he's a believer. He's a patriarch. He's been chosen of God, anointed by God. But in and of his fleshly ways, he fights, he wrestles against God. And that should tell you who I'm going to talk about, Jacob. Jacob, the son of Isaac, a patriarch, the grandson of Abraham. Now, that's a pretty good heritage. Isaac, my dad, Abraham, my granddad. And in Genesis chapter 25, the birth of Jacob and Esau is spoken of. Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother, she's pregnant, and she's pregnant with twins, but the babies are struggling so much so in her womb that she goes to God and she says, what is going on inside of me? God answers her. Two nations are in your womb. One is stronger than the other. Now notice, this is a word from God, and it's a word to Rebecca. The older will serve the younger. A word from God. But the years go by. Esau, the older brother, he sold the birthright to the younger brother, Jacob, for a bowl of red stew. And he did so because he was hungry. <laughs> God makes commentary on this transaction. And God says, Esau hated his birthright. Hated it. The birthright was a privilege given to the oldest son, the firstborn son, to be the spiritual leader of the family. God says Esau hated that responsibility. But Esau still wants the bigger share of the blessing of the firstborn. He wants that more blessing, that double blessing by being the oldest son. But how many times have men took a back seat in leading their family to the things of God? How many times have we men resisted the responsibility of guiding and teaching our families about God? Esau avoided that responsibility. He sold his birthright, uh, and we hear God say, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And you know what hated means there? Hated. That's what it means, hated. God hated Esau because he did not accept the responsibility to teach his family or his children about God. Now, to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, it is a vital responsibility that we men cannot get away from, or us mothers, well, not mother, but uh, you mothers. <laughs> and our wives are to be our helpmate, 
But the responsibility of our family falls squarely on the man's shoulder, and you cannot avoid it. You cannot avoid it. To Jacob's credit, he wanted the birthright that Esau despised. That's a good thing for Jacob. The boys, Jacob and Esau, they grow. Isaac is now old. Their father, he has bad eyesight. Isaac favors Esau. Rebekah favors Jacob. And you know that story. Isaac wants to bless Esau, the older son. He says, son, go out and hunt some wild game for me and prepare it the way I like and bring it back and I will bless you. Rebekah overhears that conversation and she remembers God had said the older will serve the younger. Isaac knows this. Rebecca knows this. It is the promise of God. This was not done in secret, but Isaac and Rebecca both will take things into their own hands, neither trusting or willing to obey God. Rebecca instructs Jacob, her son, how to deceive his father with the food she prepares. And Isaac is deceived. And Jacob is blessed. Only as he should have been blessed in the first place. Esau learns of the blessing and it makes him mad, very mad. But remember, Esau sold that birthright. He sold that blessing for a bowl of red stew. But that doesn't excuse Rebecca, and that doesn't excuse Jacob. It doesn't excuse their lying and their deception. Jacob, he did receive the blessing, and he received it by deception, by trickery. Jacob, he has to flee for his life, and he goes off to visit Uncle Laban. The deception by Rebecca and Jacob, it brings about a split within the family. It brings about a separation from of Jacob from the family. Jacob is off to see Uncle Laban, and this is the last time Rebecca sees her beloved son, Jacob. And the price of deception, the price of lying, carries a very high price tag. Rebecca never sees her son again. She will never see Jacob again. Nor will she see her grandchildren that come from Jacob. Isaac, he dies knowing that he's been disobedient to God, not willing to bless the younger. But when Esau wants Isaac to reverse that blessing, he can't and he won't. He says, what I've said, I have said, and it must be. Isaac knows God's will, the older serving the younger is of God, regardless of their unwillingness to obey that, Isaac and Rebekah, 
it is of God. I often wonder how would God bring this blessing about if Isaac and Rebecca had been obedient. We'll never know. We'll never know how God would have worked it out, but he would have. But what do we see here? We have a family that's completely shattered by deception. An extremely valuable lesson for us. God does not need any of us to help him bring about his promises. You ever want to help God bring about his promises? Rebecca and Jacob, they're willing to lie. They're willing to deceive Isaac. But that is never God's way. It is never God's way. Jacob is off to Haran. Off to Uncle Laban. This happens to be another severe trial for Jacob. <laughs> because Uncle Laban, he's ever been as conniving and deceptive as Jacob ever dreamed of being. Laban deceives Jacob about Rachel. He deceives Jacob about sheep. He deceives Jacob about his wages. Jacob, when he finally flees Laban's, he says, Laban changed my wages ten times. That's quite a few times to change your wages, by the way. Jacob didn't get the raises, the sheep that he deserved. Have you ever been passed over or deceived about your rightful share in something? Of what you've worked for? You ever been cheated in a business deal? If you haven't, come see me. I'll cheat you. No. <laughs> then if you've ever been treated dishonestly, you know how Jacob feels. But Jacob, he's finally on his way back home. He's left Haran. He's left Laban. And he's off to face Esau. And then he receives word. Esau has 400 men and he's coming to meet Jacob. This makes Jacob greatly afraid. And rightly, rightly so. For Esau's last words to Jacob was, I will kill him. After my father's time here, I'm going to kill my brother. And so Jacob can't go back to Laban and Haran, but Esau's in front of him. Jacob is trying to appease Esau, and he sends presents of livestock to Esau. Esau. But the night before, the very night before, Jacob is to encounter Esau, and Jacob has exhausted all of his options. He's out of his maneuvering. He is alone with God at the stream, at the forge of Jabbok. In Genesis 32:24 says, And Jacob wrestled with a man until the breaking of day. That man is the angel of the Lord. Many of us believe it's Jesus himself. But we have all of Jacob's trials. 
all of his failures, all of the deception that he's foisted upon anyone and everyone, they have come to a head, and now he is there by the river Jabbok, the stream Jabbok, and he wrestles with the Lord. He can't connive, he can't plot, he can't scheme his way out of this situation. Jacob's whole life has came down to one thing, and it's a wrestling match with Jesus. He's down to this final struggle. All of Jacob's years of ambitious striving, his deceitfulness, has broken down, and here it is. He now faces God, and he must deal with with his selfish ambition before God. It's all on the table for Jacob. For now he wrestles with his maker. And it's amazing how all that we're told that Jacob wanted from God is his blessing. He says, bless me. Jacob's entire working life has been as a believer. And it's come down to, bless me, Lord. Jacob has wrestled with this angel, the Lord himself, all night. And he's losing, by the way. He's not winning. And he's saying, bless me, Lord. Bless me. The Lord touches his hip, puts it out of socket. Bless me, Lord. Pain doesn't stop Jacob from wanting the blessing. He's tired. He's weary. He's losing. He's about to face Esau, who he thinks will kill him. He says, bless me, Lord. Jacob is weary. He's finally saying, okay, God, I surrender. It's it. I can't fight anymore. Please, Lord, bless me. So I ask this again, self-included. Why do you and I resist our God who wants to bless us? Why do we resist him? Why do we fight against the workings of God's Spirit in our life? You see, God has blessed and wanted to bless Jacob all alone. All this time, He's blessed Jacob, but only partially. And Jacob realizes that. And now Jacob's wanting the full blessing of God. And that's all he wants. Have you reached the Jabot stream yet in your life? You will. God will bring you there. He took Jacob there, and he will take you and I there to where the most important thing is in, in our life is for his blessing, his way, not our way, his way. 
What was the witness of Jacob's blessing? He got a name change. Okay, Jacob, you want me to bless you? I bless you. Israel's your name now. No longer Jacob. Israel. Governed by God. That's what Israel means. So Jacob undergoes a name change. And you know perfectly well there was an attitude change there too. He now no longer resists God, which Jacob means. It means heel catcher or sneaky one, whatever you want to call Jacob. But that's what Jacob means. And he got a name change from sneaky one, one who resists God, to governed by God. How I want to be governed by God in all things. Let me get you to stand and we'll close in prayer. Father God, we come before you knowing that we often resist you. We often resist the work of your spirit. And Lord, we want to repent of that because that's a lack of trust. That's a lack of faith when we resist you, Lord. Help us to understand, Lord, that you're for us in all ways and not against us. And you want to bless us. And you want to rule and reign in our hearts and lives. But you, you're going to do it your way, Lord. We can either go kicking and screaming or we can go peacefully, Lord. Let us learn from the life of Jacob. An ambitious man who struggled to get his part, to get his share, that for whatever reason he didn't think you would give to him. May we understand, Lord, that you are for us. And may we relish in that. May it be our joy. And give us grateful hearts because you are for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I will bless you. It's not the Lord's blessing. I will give you, I'll give you a little blessing. <laughs> the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.